in 2015, we had a that old Mueller double chair that had effectively gone beyond its useful life and needed to be replaced. So the Berries had basically used up all of their personal funds. The Berry family had a number of businesses in the town of Rangeley that were going to back them and sort of co-sign to keep the ski area open. They had a big meeting downtown in, in one of the bowling alleys downtown. All these business owners were there. And the bank was at the table, and um, essentially the bank doubled the terms. In that second, all of the backers pushed away from the table, and Bill came up the next day and sat down with Jared and I and Chris Farmer and says, sorry, boys, we have to close. And it's one of the toughest days I can remember. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a good one for you today, New England as we catch up on the biggest ski area comeback in the region in recent memory. Before we get to that, a reminder to please pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is great, but it is just a small part of this whole operation. I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles per year in the Storm Skiing newsletter. Not only am I analyzing the fast-moving pass landscape and the evolution of on-mountain infrastructure, but each podcast episode gets a dedicated article packed with maps, statistics, and additional content on our conversation. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it at stormskiing.com instead. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at StormSkiJournal. Before we get to Saddleback, here is a quick word from my friends at Open Snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. That means I have options and I need to know where it's going off when I plan my ski days. Is Western New York getting hammered? Is it the spine in Northern Vermont? Or can I sleep in a bit and make do with the Catskills, Poconos or Berkshires? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use open snow outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models updated hourly, resort by resort snow forecasts, and one of my favorite features, frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all U.S. emails, but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a storm partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. Episode 121, Jim Quimby, General Manager of Saddleback, Maine. Three years ago, Saddleback, a 2,000-footer anchored in the Maine wilderness, sat empty. Well, three years ago, every ski area in America sat empty in the wake of the COVID shutdowns. But Saddleback had been dormant for the five years previous. But just six weeks before the pandemic shutdowns, Boston-based Arcteris Impact Fund bought the place. I figured COVID and its attendant stay-at-home orders 
would freeze any progress on reopening Saddleback for the 2020 to 21 ski season. But the moment the stay-at-home orders were lifted, Saddleback got to work. In a single summer, they rebuilt the ski area, demolished old lifts, erected a high-speed quad, and broadcast to the world, we are back. It was one of the most remarkable comebacks in New England ski history. Just a couple of months before that reopening, I hosted Andy Shepard, then GM and CEO, who led the scariest comeback on this podcast. But Saddleback is now winding down its third season under new ownership and with a new general manager, and it was time to check in. Let's go. My guest today is the general manager of Saddleback, Maine. Saddleback features more than 600 acres of terrain on a 2,000-foot vertical drop. At 2,460 feet, the ski area is home to the highest base elevation in New England. Saddleback was closed from 2015 until Boston-based Arcteris Impact Fund reopened the mountain for skiing in 2020. He started at Saddleback as a volunteer ski patroller in 1997 and has held various roles on the mountain, including, most recently, as Senior Vice President of Mountain Operations. Prior to joining the team at Saddleback, he served more than 20 years in the United States Air Force. Jim Quimby is my guest. Jim, how are you doing today? So happy to get caught up with you. Welcome to the storm. What's going on? Good morning, Stuart. Uh, having a great, great season here at Saddleback and uh, looking forward to talking to you this morning. A little breezy outside Saddleback this morning. Uh, we got some wind issues, but hopefully that blows over and uh, we get back in business here. Well, that'll happen to you in Maine. That wind has been bringing a freaking ferocious snow train to Saddleback for several weeks now. Talk about what conditions are like right now and how the winter has turned in your favor over the last couple of weeks. We uh, we went through some pretty hardcore weather events right uh, a couple of days before Christmas after a big big 30-inch snow dump. We got a big rain, got rained upon bad before Christmas week, and then we went through a serious freeze here about uh, two weeks ago, uh, where Mother Nature, I think, tried to kill us. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, but as of late, we've been, we've been getting these little three to five inch storms and they've always been followed up with rain. Hasn't been too bad because it's, it's packed, uh, packed that snow down and it's given us a service, a, a really decent surface where we were the first ski area, I think almost in New England that was 100% open. Uh, with really decent off-piece terrain. As of late, this past week, we've got over 34 inches of snow. And I've never, well, I can't say I've never, but there was a lot of hooting and hollering going in and going on through the <laughs> woods and on our trails. You could you could hear the, you could hear people loving it and uh, people skied their legs off. <laughs> <laughs> and how much were you out there sampling the product yourself, Jim? Well, I I'm, have to say my legs are pretty tired this morning. When I walked upstairs last night, I had to use the handrail. So I went out and made some turns yesterday. That's for sure. <laughs> Love it, Jim. Are, are you a telly guy or alpine guy? I know I know you have a lot of a good, strong telly culture up there. So I, I've, I have tellied for the uh, pretty much the past 20 years. Um, as of late, I get a lot more infrequent in my skiing and I'm mm. not in as good a shape as I usually am. And I have been opting for the old alpine big, big, uh, wide rockered option. Cause it's easier to ski on this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, 
I, I did put the tellies on the other day after the, the, the initial snow dump and uh, made a few telly spirals down uh, one of our trails, the Golden Smelt, and just went in and put alkyte pine gear on. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten back into Casablanca this season? How are those skiing? So Casablanca is skiing so well right now. Uh, Mule Skinner was one of the last trails we did last night, which is on the far side of Casablanca. Uh, that whole that whole uh, double black diamond pod that we have up there is just spectacular right now. Uh, Casablanca, I think, was on the tip of everybody's tongue yesterday afternoon. And, the, and when everybody got done skiing, uh, it's skiing unbelievably great. So for anyone who's been up to Saddleback, it's a haul and you really have to make an effort to get up there. How does that translate crowds wise, Jim, even in a season where you're having really great snow conditions like you do right now, how is the mountain skiing as far as crowds go on weekends? And then what do weekdays look like right now? So that's a great question. Uh, It's, it's the, the travel time we are, we're about the same distance as Sugarloaf, not that, that much uh, difference. Our, our biggest issue is rental units and things of that nature. We're, we're a huge snowmobile town, so we, sh- we share our beds with the, with the snowmobilers. And so I think that's our biggest limiting factor. We do really well on the weekends. Our, our skier visits are up. We uh, in- increased our uh, skier visit expectation this year to, to, to keep this big wheel moving up here, and we're keeping up with it. Uh, I know that you, I, you're going to ask me about the Indy Pass. The Indy Pass has helped us immensely. It's our, the best product we have. Lots of new people making the trek. Uh, as you well know, in parts of uh, southern Vermont and, and southern New Hampshire are really struggling for snow, and people have ventured up. We just need the beds, and if we had the beds, we would do a lot better. But right now, we handle the ski area well on the weekends, even at peak capacity. The, the lifts handle it well. The trails handle it well. We're, we're limited in parking. That gets us a little bit. We end up parking on the road. And then our business centers struggle a little bit because uh, the rental shop, the, uh, the ski school, uh, the cafeteria to serve that many people kind of get behind a little bit, but we always catch up. Everybody keeps ahead in the game. So it sounds like you're evolving the ski area really nicely, Jim, and and I think you've seen it all at this point. So So let's go back a little bit here and reset this. So you, you grew up in Rangeley. So take us back here, Jim. What are your earliest memories of Saddleback and what was the ski area like when you were growing up? Yeah, this is uh, one of the favorite parts of my life. I grew, I grew up skiing here starting sometimes in the mid-60s. Uh, my father worked here. My father started working here in 1963, uh, wow. built, building the uh, the original uh, Mueller double chair that what we called uh, the big chair for years. And my grandfather in 1960 helped build the original T-bar that we had up until two years ago. We finally tore it down. So, And my mother worked in the cafeteria, so I, I, I tell this quite often that Saddleback was my babysitter. Uh, <laughs> my my er, earliest memories of, of, of being up here was, I mean, we we just basically had the, the run of the place. And one certain group of people would get ticked off at us and kick us out of their area. We'd go find somewhere else to hang out with. <laughs> It's like we were often asked to leave the lodge. <laughs> so we'd go hang out with a lift operator or go sit up in the warming hut or torment, torment the ski patrol a little bit until they kicked us out of their little area. <laughs> but but uh, it was all, I mean, we had a good rapport with our staff. My father would not allow us to not have a bad rapport, but we acted out a little bit. So my my whole my whole childhood was spent here. My mother always says Saddleback was my, our 
babysitters. I have a, a sister and two brothers, and and uh, we were here all the time. If we weren't in school in the wintertime, we were at Saddleback, and uh, it was every day, and uh, it was slalom, giant slalom, and we did freestyle, you know, the bumps, the jumps, and the ballet. Uh, so... I don't know. It's just it was just our life when I was a kid, and every friend I know that was was up here. So skiing was a different thing in the '60s and '70s, Jim. And we didn't have the technology we do today. We didn't have the lifts. We didn't have the great grooming. We didn't have terrain parks. It was often you had to seek out your own jump. So just talk about that part of skiing. And, and as a result, we didn't have the expenses to go along with modern skiing. Just the, the piece of it that was, you know, maybe more community based, maybe a little rougher around the edges, but maybe also a little free, more free spirited. What, what was skiing like in that era in the context of, of what skiing is in 2023? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, and I think about this often in my, my new position here, life was much simpler back then. Uh, but, you, but I also, you know, I'm reading back and I'm, and I'm a bit of a historian of Saddleback, which basically means I th- think I have every piece of Saddleback memorabilia. <laughs> I have a little bit of a museum in my office and stuff, but I've, re- I, I, I've read a ton of articles and there were years when Saddleback were only open a few days a year. Uh, the, the, I, the year they built a, the big chair, the mule there, the big double. I think it, I think it only ran about 12 days because of snow. And I think the year after that, it didn't run very many more days because of limited snow. Uh, the T-bar ran a little bit. So it always amazes me. And I had this conversation on a chairlift yesterday with one of this, one of our former snowmakers that is a kid growing up here in the seventies. And I left here in 78. We had no snowmaking. It was a really small system on the lower mountain, which my father will always tell the story the year they put it in was about the coldest rod in year there was, and they thought they were all going to freeze to death. They got, the, they got this little snowmaking system operational, and they got buried with snow, and they never saw it till the next spring. <laughs> that, was a, that was a really simple, small one on the lower mountain. And, uh, but we never had snowmaking, and, and it just amazes me today when I, when I think about not having snowmaking try to run the ski area. It would be impossible. I mean, we would just barely get, be going now. So technology has definitely in, in, increased the skiing. I mean, just everything about snowmaking. You have to have snowmaking. It's, you almost can't survive without it. And like you said, it would, life was much more, more inexpensive back then. It was a lot, you know, a lot easier and a lot cheaper to run. But, but these lifts and how they operate and the, the, the snow grooming equipment, my father will always tell stories about being in an old tucker coming down with a roller and, you know, basically think the roller's going to pass him and he's going to flip the thing and roll it over down the hill. And yeah, I mean, the technology's changed and the skiing surface has changed so much. It is extremely expensive, but I mean, it is, it is the expectation of the cover, customer to have this surface. But to go back, man, it just amazes me. We had, we didn't have snowmaking back in those days. <laughs> Talk about Rangeley a little bit, Jim, just outside of the context of Saddleback. What was it like growing up in Rangeley and how has that community changed over the decades? Yeah, Rangeley was a really small town as a kid. It was the kind of, kind of small town that if you did a little bit of mischief on um, Main Street, that mischief got home to your mother's ear before <laughs> you did. And <laughs> everybody knew everybody. Uh, we had party lines, which means you, you know, you rang the phone a certain number of uh, ringtones and, 
and everybody on the line could listen to your phone conversation back then, you know, and they did. <laughs> there was, that was the only form of communication. Everybody kind of wanted to know what was going on. But, you know, it was a uh, real, we're pretty far out off of the food chain when it comes to, uh, when it comes to living in Maine, even in Maine, you know, we're, we're quite a ways away. I always say, can't see, we're not on the edge of the earth, but we can see it. <laughs> but uh, the logging town, Rangy was a logging town, uh, mostly, and in uh, the sports fishing is in is what really put Rangeley on the map. And it got so bad there in the early years in life that you know all these woodcutters and 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 guides and stuff like that couldn't make a living in the winter, and that's what brought the ski area about. Uh, the evolution of Rangeley, it, it's still in the basic footprint. Nothing major has changed. There's a bowling alley and a few other things there, but most of the main stores and everything are still there. And I was a kid, but I mean, everything has been bought uh, after the, when the coronavirus hit, everybody moved into out of the cities and into the suburbs. We took, we took that and every property and every building that was for sale in Rangeley for, for the most part is sold. Uh, so there's a huge influx of uh, uh, other people, which is great. And uh, that's the biggest change to it, I think, that there is in Rangeley is the, the influx of uh, newer, newer uh, residents. So it sounds like a really idyllic place to grow up and a place that you value and treasure. Nonetheless, as you mentioned, in 1978, at the age of 18, you joined the U.S. Air Force. Why did you join the Air Force, Jim? Where did you serve? Take us through your take us through your motivation and your career there. <laughs> That's kind of a funny story. I got in a fair amount of trouble when I was in high school, did some stupid stuff, and I <laughs> I always say I joined the Air Force on the Judge John Benoit enrollment program. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I had a couple of choices, and the first one wasn't good, and I did join the Air Force. I was somewhat uh, in the process of enlisting before I got in that little trouble, but uh Anyway, I joined the Air Force at, um, a few days after I turned 18. So I was just a few days into being 18 years old, young, skinny kid. And I went in, in the service and uh, didn't really like it much. And I went to Guam on my first tour for two years, uh, continually, continued to not behave well, got a fair amount of trouble there. Uh, and then I came back to Florida. I met my former wife and got married and had three kids in Florida. And when I started having these kids, every, every term of enlistment, I was planning on getting out. And, uh, I, I had twins and I had to stay in and I had my oldest daughter, I had to stay in. And so I just stayed in. I spent a lot of time in Florida. Um, I spent nine years in Florida, uh, and didn't basically didn't ski for those nine years, uh, maybe once, but then from Florida, I, I got stationed in Southern California at Edwards Air Force Base in the desert. But I got to I got back into skiing after nine years and went to Mount Snow, Snow Summit, and uh, Mammoth and places like that, and got back into it and, and got the itch again. And then uh, the Air Force was gracious enough to send me to Northern Japan to Masawa Air Force Base, Ooh. which is the most incredible place I have ever skied in my life. Five to 600 inches of snow. I was in Northern Japan. I skied every weekend. I was in a ski club there called the Mogul Masters Ski Club. And we had a couple 300 uh, people in our club. And, and we had uh, uh, MWR buses, Morale, Wealth, and 
I can't remember the term, but they had buses for the uh, Air Force people to use, and we used them every weekend to go skiing pretty much every weekend. I skied probably 26 different ski areas in Japan. And uh, unfortunately, the only thing that ever got stolen out of any of my military moves was I had a a box full of trail maps for every ski area I went in Japan, and that disappeared in life. And I certainly wish I had that box full of ski maps. Oh, that hurts. (laughs) But anyway, Japan was so much fun to go. It was uh, it was incredible. Yeah, the the powder skiing and it was just incredible. And then to put the cherry on the top of the ice cream cake, there I uh, I got sent to Hill Air Force Base, Utah, for my last four years. Wow. And uh, right there in Ogden, and I I worked at Snow Basin as a ski instructor, skied every almost every skier in Utah, and ended my tour there in. Uh, in 1998 with a great big smile on my face and <laughs> headed back home about, about as fast as I could head back home. So you didn't consider staying in Utah or maybe scooting back to Japan? So I, that was uh, at, at Hill, that was when Snow Basin was undergoing its huge uh, upgrade for the Olympics. So I, uh, I had a chance to, to stay there and work and I worked on power lines when I was in the military. I was a lineman. Uh, just like your local lineman working on your power lines in any community. And uh, I had the ability to stay there and be a lineman and make a ton of money. But I had three daughters that were in the 12, 13, 14 year old range uh, that I, that were, I wanted to watch go through their teens and have them torment, torment me through their (laughs) girl teenage years. (laughs) So I, I went back home to see my kids grow up before they left it, uh, you know, on high school and went to college. So families first, and you always want to make that the center of your life. What, what else though, Jim drew you back to Rangeley? Was there something about the place that some intangible thing that just made that the place you had to be? I always said when I joined the military, I was always going back to Rangeley and the old military NCOs would tell you, eh, no one goes back to their home once you get, once you retire from the military. You'll find something better. And not, and not at any one point in my life did I ever just think I was not coming back to Rangeley. Even in my high school yearbook, I, you know, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I'm going to work at Saddleback. <laughs> I had I had really no intention ever of leaving this town. I love it here. So you're gone for two decades. You go all over the world some places with great skiing, some with no skiing. Did you, were you able to get back much in that two decades? And when you finally did come back, how had the town and how had Saddleback evolved or changed? So that was uh, during the Breen era. Uh, Saddleback was essentially exactly the same as I left it in okay. 1978, except for the T-bar, the, that kind of big old T-bar opened up that whole uh, mule skinner uh, area and uh, tight line and those areas. So they did add that. And that's the other funny thing about life is before 1978, we didn't have, have the upper mountain. Mm-hmm. And I, that's hard to, hard to remember, you know. But, <laughs> but so when I came back, the upper mountain was there and the T-bar was there. And in 98, I started as a volunteer ski patroller here until 2003. So I skied here almost every weekend. And uh, Don Breen was in a a big debate with the uh, federal government over the uh, Appalachian Trail. Basically, ran the ski area, was planning to develop the ski area. None of those plans came to fruition. 
and basically ran it at a minimal expense for as long as he could. And uh, so in the, in the 98 years when I was here from 98, 99, there weren't very many people here, quite honestly. You know, we'd get our big weekends and stuff, but the lifts needed a lot of work. There was a lot of deferred maintenance. Uh, we, we had a lot. We had a lot of problems. We had a we had a snowmaking system then that pumped water from rock pond through a ten inch PVC pipe. Uh, they had a fair amount of success with very a lot of work to keep it going. Uh, but they did make snow here and, and groom it and stuff. But it seemed like it, the mountain just was just kept deteriorating. And that's not that's not because of Don Breen. It was just a you know he was trying to develop the area and. and you know, got into this battle with the Appalachian Trail, and it just gave us a stalemate here. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Jim? It's 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 not exactly the same, but it echoes a lot of ski area development disputes that we see across the country, which is basically the you have opposing interests that want to they have a different idea of land use, land management, and what you end up at is a stalemate, and nothing happens, and no one is happy. So, reset this for us. What was the dispute about the Appalachian Trail, and how did that impact the, the ski area's ambitions over the course of this very, very long-running argument? So, uh, basically, uh, both both sides set their heels. Don Don had a development plan that basically wanted to go over the top of the mountain and cross the Appalachian Trail, and he and he wanted to put a lift return terminal like right within sight of the Appalachian Trail and the Appalachian Trail said heck no um, and uh, they they have authority and uh, and basically basically stopped it and Don wasn't going to give he just wasn't going to give and he held his ground and uh, we have a file cabinet full of Appalachian Trail stuff and my one of my predecessors Tom McAllister that I think the world of and has since passed he was the general manager here for almost 50 years he he struggled and he kept with it and he kept with it and he never gave up and he never gave up and he never gave up and you know when uh when Don Breen actually closed the place in uh 2003 the summer of 2003 and uh for, for that summer uh, it was basically because he'd given up the fight with the Appalachian Trail, and uh, hence Bill Berry comes in. They made a land swap, uh, basically swapped some land, came to some agreeable terms, and all of a sudden the Appalachian Trail debate went away, and and uh, we we had no intention of putting a lift within sight of the uh, Appalachian Trail uh, return terminal, and uh, all is good, and uh, they've got the Appalachian Trail got a little bit more land out of it, and. And uh, Bill Berry went into business. What is your relationship like today with the National Park Service? There's a really good write-up of this whole dispute on New England ski history, which I'll link to on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But it was really contentious, and it, it seemed to get really nasty and and personal, and the National Park Service was pushing back hard and really lowballing the value of the land. You know, I, I know these things evolve. Different officials have different philosophies and come and go. It seems as though throughout the country, the National Park Service and ski areas have a pretty good working relationship. What does that look like at Saddleback? How much of your land or how much of the ski area is on National Park Service land and how much is private? And, and what is that relationship like today? So, uh, first of all, we have a, a great rapport with the National Park Service. We ha- barely have any interaction with them. 
And when we do, it is, uh, we built a sol solar field, uh, which quite a ways down on the lower part of the property, but within view. And uh, we have good talks with them. We built a mid-mountain lodge that you can see. We do view shed analysis with them. We respect their opinion. We, we use browns and greens and all of our color palettes for our lifts and stuff like that. So we listen to them and they, they listen to us and we really don't have a, any problem with them. We keep an open dialogue. Uh, we, we respect the view shed. Um, and as you and as you walk on the Appalachian Trail, you can see our solar field and you can see windmills and you can see this these things that are entering up in the horizon. Uh, we're we're going to try to stay on a good rapport with them and just go through that way. And, you know, the world is evolving. You know, we we deal with IFNW, Inland Fisheries and Wildlife in the state of Maine. And there's a, a, a lot more protected species than it used to be. And we have to develop around uh, protected species and uh, mayflies and salamanders and, and of course the big nails thrush uh we have to we have to play within the rules of engagement and uh we want to be good to the good to the land i don't know exactly how much land we that belongs to the at i should know that uh it's six or seven hundred acres i think and, and i i'm pretty th sure of that but it's across our entire summit and then it goes down because we own the horn also so it goes down into the valley and it goes across the top of the horn and uh anyway the whole front side of the horn belongs to saddleback also so you mentioned the berry family jim a moment ago so in 2003 the berry family comes in don green had owned the ski resort since 1978 or so late 1970s tell us about the berries and how they work to improve saddleback over their tenure so uh i i, I can't to say enough how much that I love the Berry family and how close I was with the Berry family and what they did for our community in this ski area. I have the utmost respect for, and I always will say in 2015, when we closed, you know, their, their legacy ended on a bad note. And I'm very sad because of that. The Berry family basically invested their entire, uh, all of their money into the ski area and they gave it their best shot. And, Probably one of my biggest dis disappointments that uh, that we had to close, uh, and but uh, and I can I'll explain that why we closed in 2015. But uh, anyway, when Bill came in in 2003, Saddleback was effectively closed that summer. So uh, uh, he came in and he was the savior, and he he uh, he bought the place and he bought it for a you know a pretty good deal, and and he started uh, started and. I was the first full-time year-round person he hired in 2003, and my my initial job was a ski patrol and a safety officer, and uh, we went to work. And uh, first year, we bought some snowmaking hose and put some new tees on the T-bar and uh, basically just operated. Uh, in 2004, I would essentially compare us to the big dig in Boston when that went on because everything got replaced, you know, the... We, we added a, a chairlift. We uh, added a whole new snowmaking system, a bunch of trails, extended an old chairlift, rebuilt a lodge, which is one of the most beautiful lodges in the ski business as far as I'm concerned. And we went at it for a few years, four or five and six. We added snowmaking and trails and things of that nature. And uh, we built condos and uh, just 
just never pulled the skier visits that we effectively needed to keep the place operating. But uh, we were in stiff competition here between Sugarloaf and Sunday River, and they have a they have a huge following, and uh, that that is uh, that's a real deal to us. But uh, Berry family stayed right in it and until 2015, and unfortunately, that's when the bottom fell out. And I can explain that if you'd like. But uh, again, I, I most respect and love for the Berry family for what they did. Uh, and and the, the true core Saddleback still loves and respects the Berry family for what they did and, and what they did for Saddleback. It's just, it's just I can't say enough about that either. What happened in 2015, Jim? So we in 2015, we had a we had a uh, that old Mueller that old Mueller double chair that had effectively gone beyond its useful life and needed to be replaced, uh, much like the T bar had gone beyond its mu- life and useful life and needed to be replaced. It was just needed to be replaced, uh, and uh, they so the berries had basically used up all of their personal funds. Uh, it was going to be a I don't know, a two and a half to three million dollar project back then. Uh, the Berry family had a number of businesses in the town of Rangeley that were going to back them and sort of co-sign to keep the ski area open. They had a big, big meeting downtown and in, in, in one of the bowling alleys downtown. All these business owners were there and the bank was at the table and um, uh, essentially the bank doubled the terms. In that in that second, all of the all of the backers pushed away from the table, and Bill came up the next day and sat down with Jared and I and Chris Farmer and says, "Sorry, boys, we have to close." And it's one of the toughest days I can remember. I don't want to put you in a position where you have to speak for Mister Barry here, Jim. But did you have a sense of how hard that was for him personally? Tears in his eyes the days he, he told us, and he meant it. It was a uh, a really tough day. He, uh, I mean, I, he loved this place. His family loved this place. I mean, it was, there was much saddleback as myself and Jared, as you know, who grew up here our whole lives, you know, uh, in an extreme disappointment to his family. I know he took it personally that he kind of let the town down. I feel bad for that because he did. I mean, he had to close and it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. In my opinion, uh, it was just a sign of the times and, I, he took it really hard. And then, and then there was a, there were a lot of pop shots taken at him. I think there was a lot of dirty pool. I think that people were undermining what he did and how he was doing stuff. And uh, as someone that was involved in every conversation and every decision for the five years that it was closed, I can say with all certainty that uh, Bill did his best to make the best decisions he could to sell the ski area. And quite honestly, holding out through all of the people that tried to buy us that were less than desirable. I guess I'll use that word and, and sticking it out for five years to get our terrace got here. Uh, we call the five years, the dark ages that was closed. He made the right decision. And uh, thank goodness he did because uh, if any of the other groups of people had picked us up, we would have never been in the situation where we are now. So it sounds like he got in a bad spot had the best intentions and did everything he could before throwing in the towel. Going back here, Jim, I just love to get your take on a big decision that the Berries made, which was to replace the Kennebago T-Bar with a brand new fixed grip quad, which is great. As you said, that terrain back there is some of the best in new England. 
And I know that changed the way that whole pod skied. In retrospect, would it have made more sense to replace the Rangeley double with that fixed grip quad first and then worry about the T-bar later so you could get that out of base? Because that, that, that was the main pinch point on the mountain. Would that have helped? Or do you think that it didn't? It wouldn't really have mattered ultimately? So that, that's a really, really good question. And uh, a, a question I think about often, to tell you the truth, Stuart. Uh, uh, the, uh, I, I've thought, well, we should have just replaced the, the Rangeley back then. And, 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 but quite honestly, when it comes to maintenance and repair, that, the T, that, T bar, that upper mountain T-bar had gone beyond its safe operating tenure. Uh, I had a conversation with our former general manager uh, the summer that, that we replaced it. And uh, that summer of, I think it was 2007, because we replaced it in 2008, and basically said, you know, uh, there was, Sean Walton was our lift mechanic and Jared Emerson, who's still here, was a lift mechanic and myself and basically said, Tom, we're not running that T-bar anymore. And you were just not going to. It is not safe to operate. Uh, everything about it was... It was cool. It was nostalgic, but quite honestly, I'm, when you fell off it, it, they they used to call it the slide for life. I I heard of a ski patroller go from top to bottom <laughs> on his on his chest with his head downhill and not hit a lift tower, and uh, and we couldn't groom it. We could, we had a hard time getting a snowcat in. It was death defying to pull the tees so a snowcat could go through, but it beyond it was not safe to operate anymore. Uh, it was just not safe to operate anymore. The return structure was in a uh, built into ledge that had a lot of water flowing through it, uh, a lot of seepage. I mean, we didn't trust uh, we didn't trust the uh, the rock anchors and all of that stuff anymore. And it was done. And that was a decision that had to, would had to be made. And uh, and we needed that. And that and that Kennebago Quad did change that area immensely. The old. The old hardcore T-bar lovers, you know, made T-shirts and scoff and complained and stuff like that. But when they actually got to ride the ride the Kennebago quad, I think that all, all of that went away. Uh, it's hard to ch- it's hard to judge this decision because we couldn't have lost that area. So the only way we could have kept the upper mountain was to replace that. So that's how come the Kennebago happened before the Rangeley. So the berries seem to have skiers' hearts. When you look at the trail maps from 2003 up until they closed Skiria in 2015, every year there were these little improvements, Jim, that skiers like you and I can really appreciate. They'd glade a new area or they'd improve a lift or, or, or something that was very skier-centric. So you put in this new lift, and I'd imagine that from what you're saying, it vastly improved the quality of, of the experience back there but it doesn't sound like it translated to more skiers. As you're watching this and you're seeing the ski area get better, how frustrating was it for you to watch the, I guess the word not really ripple out or or not really see the the sort of business returns you would have liked for what they were putting into the ski area? Also a, a great point. When uh, when we built a Kennebago, uh, you know, we needed we needed something else. It wasn't just a Kennebago. I mean, you had Mule Skinner and, and you had – America and tricolor and we needed something else and uh, we had you had tight line and supervisor and wardens worry uh, limited snowmaking up there to, at the time America didn't have snowmaking on it and we had a very crude rudimentary snowmaking system on tight line back then uh, so we needed something else I mean just because we put the lift there didn't wasn't the, 
solved all of our problems. And then Casablanca came in into play. And uh, I have it on my wall right in front of me, Casablanca. I thought of this because it's, it's so funny that uh, everybody thinks they thought of Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, everybody thinks that they, they thought of Casablanca. That's my idea. That's my idea. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, it's been in the back of skiers' minds for a long time. And there's even conceptual drawings of a chairlift going through Casablanca to the to the uh uh what do you call it that left peak up there and uh it, which never happened but Casablanca did start to change the game and uh at 2008 2009 2010 we were fairly successful back then we had a we had a following that was doing really well back then and then uh you know after that we we got in some financial problems we weren't we weren't covering the we weren't covering the cost to operate. The berries were subsidizing our operation on a regular basis. We were trying to keep up with uh, building condos and sell a condo and they give us a little bit more money. Uh, so the deterioration of the ski area started to happen. Uh, the T-bar was a little less reliable. Rangely Double was getting a little bit less reliable and it affected our skier visits. Uh, but we stayed pretty flat from those years on until the year we closed. So you're, you came back, you always want to work at Saddleback. You came back to Maine and started working at Saddleback right away. The berries bring you on full time and you're in it, Jim. You're seeing all these things I'm describing from afar. You're in it. You're making it happen. I don't know if you're out in the, in the forest in the summer helping cut the glades, but, but you're part of the mountain. So you're in this room and with the berries and they say, we're, that's it. We, we give up, we're closing it down. What was that like for you? What, how did you react to that? What was that moment like? Yeah, I was, uh, it was surreal to me because I actually never believed it would happen. We'd had so many times before of the, not the threat that we were closing, but hey, Jim, if we can't pull this together, we might not be able to pull this off. And so almost every, almost every spring when we closed, I, I'd, I'd get a, a something in my stomach that wasn't right. Like, oh, man, I hope we can get this place going again. Uh, when we closed, I quite honestly didn't believe it. I just didn't believe it. And I figured someone was going to buy it. Uh, the amount of money that the berries invested in it and uh, the actual infrastructure itself was unlike most other skiers that have closed, that they're, that they're deter deteriorated to the point that you can tell that, that they're not going to operate again. Our stuff was in good shape. Our snowmaking was good. Our lodge was good. Other than that lift, uh, we were in good shape. So really surprised that, that it closed. And, uh, and then we went through the stages of, okay, we kept our core staff on for a while. And then our core staff started leaving. They started taking jobs at other ski areas. Uh, no one likes hanging around all the time when the, when there's uncertainty and then, uh, it just and everybody left, and and I've said this before too. We just kept having these going away parties for these people that meant so much to us, and and then they were all gone. And then there was there was only four or five of us for the first couple three years of closure, and and then they even left. They'd had enough, and uh, uh, we had uh, a number of people that came up here that had had a. I would like to say they had good intentions, but they were never they never had the were never capitalized enough to pull us off. Just a number of people. We had 
one one gentleman that led us on for almost two years was going to buy us was going to build 10-story buildings and replace all our lifts with detach detachable six packs with heated seats and literally kept us kept us on the hook for at least 18 months if not longer and uh and uh he, and then then we had the magella group and uh you know he he actually put money down on the place quite a bit of money down on it i was like all right he's really going to do this but he also had these starry eyes and this vision that and he was and he was unfunded he didn't have the capital to do it he was going to do it on someone else's money and uh and uh and he kept us on the hook for a long time got to the point where we weren't making payroll uh anybody else that might have been left had gone by then uh, his the the gentleman that he brought on uh uh fred uh just leave his name is fred uh he came, he came on and and basically used his own money to start helping us pay stuff and i thought the world of fred i was hoping to work with fred for a long time and uh and then and then fred left and uh and then a, a former partner of the magella group another australian guy kept us on on the line for geez another eight or nine months after that so it was always a breath that I, I felt like my nose was right even with the top of the water in the drowning format <laughs> but uh but I, I always said, I always tell people in Rainsley that if I'm here, there's there's a chance. Uh, it may be slim, but there's a chance. But the day I leave, there's that they're going to start liquidating the place. And, and, it, and it never came to that. But I also got to be known as the little boy called Wolf. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people got sick of hearing me saying, hey, it's for real this time. Hey, we're going to do this. And people would just look at me like, yeah, right, Jimmy. Yeah, nice try, but right. <laughs> And, uh, and even when our terrorists bought us, thank goodness on earth for that. Uh, I would, we were, were sold and was happy and this and that and the other thing. And people didn't even raise their eyeballs yet. When, when I start seeing a chairlift come up there, I'll believe it. <laughs> so that was a struggle. That five years was tough. And, and uh, the negotiations between the various and uh, our terrorists was tough. Uh, I was involved in that. And, uh, but just thankful to all the lucky stars that, uh, you know, that it, that they saw it through and our terrorist bought us. So the Berries kept you on as the official caretaker of Saddleback for five years. You just described the, that time from an emotional point of view and, and the frustration of that and the sort of macro narrative of it. But what was it like on the ground, Jim? What, what, what did you do to make sure that Saddleback doesn't fall apart? Because as we all know, ski areas can fall apart real quick. Mother nature wants its, land back and it will take it any way it can and destroy everything you've built. So what did that five years look like for you? And how did you keep that mountain together so that when you did have a buyer, you could get it going in the short amount of time that you did? So the, the five years of closure I did, we, the few of us that came on here and there and, and Jared stayed with us for about three of it. And uh, another guy, Bruce Lancaster came in the last two and a half years of uh going through the art terrace purchase but we mowed we took the garbage we cut we carried firewood uh, we still had condos that we took care of and uh, as far as the lodge we kept it heated kept it occupied and uh, kept it clean and in uh, all of the things that in in make it presentable doesn't don't make it look like no one lives here 
just from a safety and a security point of view. So people just don't start stealing stuff and, and things of that nature. And we kept the garage heated and we kept, kept our equipment in the garage and did a little bit of mechanical work and basically anything that needed to be done. And I kept an eye on the property. That was the bright, the, the only bright part of it is I got to keep an eye on this place while it was resting and, and getting ready. And, uh, but uh, to keep the lifts open and the snowmaking going and all of that stuff, during the five years that we were closed, a number of the uh, uh, people looking to buy us wanted to see the snowmaking system operate or wanted to see the lifts operate. So almost every summer, we had the ability to run our lifts. And almost every summer, we had the ability to run our snowmaking system up to the top of the mountain to see, say, see there it still works. And even one, at one point in the summer, we bought uh, the South Americans up that uh, trimmed all of the trails and, and stuff like that. And we kept the trails mowed as best we could. And, uh, and that was very helpful because when we did open back up, everything had to be done to the nines. And I mean everything. Every part and piece got taken apart. And we had to build a new lift. And we mowed all of our trails and we trimmed all of our glades and when we opened we opened with a with a bang it wasn't like a partial opening or, or a glimmer of light we opened with a bang uh so that five years of what we did here to keep the place going and even during the Magella years years of operating it and occupying it a lot more was very helpful to keeping it going so in 2020 after all these ups and downs Arcturus comes along. What was different about Arcturus, Jim? Why did this one work when so many other false prophets had come through and let everyone down? So they they had a business model and and they did the they did the math. Uh, they went into our uh, our financials, saw what good we had, saw saw what we needed to work on, listened to our story. Uh, Jared was still was still with us then and we'd have these conversations with them because quite frankly, I knew where all the, the skeletons were buried and I, we know what we needed to do. And, and, uh, and, and uh, so just, you know, we, we know we needed to replace the range. Like we know we needed to, to get our trails back in shape. We, we know that we need to do all this stuff, but our terrorists listened to us and they heard us and they worked with us. And it's like, they rolled their shirt sleeves up with us and, and, uh, and, and came to a point of we can make this happen. And, and what really what really sparked their interest is we have 6,300 acres of land. We own a- almost everything around us. That's not doesn't happen very much in the ski business. So the 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 real estate potential, you know, was what you know caught their eye. Is okay. We keep the ski area operating. We run a we run a wonderful ski area with great snow surface and great grooming and great lifts. We'll sell real estate, and uh, that's that's what we're trying to do, Stuart. And that's what really lured them in to this. And uh, and when they got into it, I, I think that they, you know, they look at it as like, holy cow! And then the prices of everything doubled or tripled. <laughs> the prices of electricity is tripled. The prices of fuel is at least doubled, and the prices of labor has doubled. Uh, so you know, to absorb these expenses and keep going is put us on a critical path of. Hey, now we really need to get in our development, and we need, really need to sell some 
some uh, plate. We need to. We need beds. We need to have people for people to sleep. So that that up their game. That up there our game with that. So anyway, I, it was the real estate that really brought them online. Jonathan Tower, uh, managing partner, uh, fell in love with the place. Uh, he looks at the place like the rest of us, and uh, I I don't think he's anytime going to give up on it. <laughs> he's he's got his hands dug right in. Uh, and it is nice to see Jonathan when he comes up here because he has a, a very true smile on his face. It's it, it's genuine. Uh, and when his eyes sparkles, when he looks at the place, uh, he's very supportive of us. Uh, and he he kicks our tail when we need to get our businesses settled, <laughs> you know, our business ventures settled. And, and we can take that. It's good. But I enjoy working with Jonathan and that our terrace team a lot. So Arcturus closes on Saddleback on January 31st, 2020. And I probably don't need to give this context for anyone listening, but that was just about six weeks before the entire ski industry. And for that matter, pretty much the entire world shut down in reaction to COVID-19's arrival. And I, I was sitting here, you know, from the peanut gallery saying, all right, well, we'll see Saddleback in three or four years when they can recover from this. You guys did it. I, I mean, I, I'm i still in awe of what happened that spring and summer because in spite of the shutdown, which basically brought everything to a halt for a couple of months, you got the place open. And I was there on opening day, December 15th, 2020. But it's almost unimaginable what it takes to get a ski area open just in a regular summer, right? And then you add the fact that it was closed for five years. And then you add the fact that you're taking down and installing a brand new lift of the sort that you'd never operated there before. So take us back here, Jim, what was that spring and summer like? What was the energy like and how did you do it? And what did you have to do? So uh, one of the first things that happened when, when Art Terrace bought us is what the, the, the person that I work with the most, Jared Emerson, who has also been here for 20 years, the exact same tenure that I have, was hired a, a little bit after me and him and I have worked together for, like I said, for next year, will be 20 years. He was the first one to come back, basically closed his toolbox downtown, told his wife and family, and basically started here, I think, almost the next day. Wow. Uh, Jared is the nut, nuts and bolts and, and he is the operation. And uh, I, I often say that I all, I all the time get all the credit for everything that he and the crew does uh, because I'm a lot more visible and do a lot more of the, you know, the interviews and talks like this, Stuart. But uh, Jared's behind the scenes and he, and he really keeps an eye on everything. I don't even know. I, he, he must work 100 hours a week out there just to keep this place going. But when Jared came back, the pandemic – you're right. Kicked us right in the guts. You've got to be kidding me. But it gave us opportunity that would you never would have thought you would see. For instance, no one bothered us. It was like a ghost town. There was no one around. Uh, no one. And right. uh, and the other thing, there was there was a lot of people in the ski business that that didn't, you know, they they were uncertain of what their career path was going to be. And hey, Saddleback's building. And we're, we're the construction was essential business, so we were allowed to build. So we got these, we we got to hire these people that were really good at what they did, and we didn't need very many of them. So we did it with a few people, and then uh, the other thing there was opportunity, but with uh, 
with the building the, the detachable quad because Doppelmeyer, basically everybody put all of their orders on hold. So there was just us and one other ski area building lifts that year. So we got the cream of the crop of the crew and we got the best of everything that they had to offer without having to wait for anything. And uh, we got financing on snowmaking equipment and grooming equipment, which was typically not off- offered because we were like the only game in town. And, uh, and we built and we built and we hired. And uh, because so many people were li- laid off, we got to, you know, pick and choose the, the, the cream of the crop sort of. So there was benefit for us to that. Uh, and as we went through the through the summer, would uh, I, I couldn't watch the news anymore because I, I was like, "When's the hammer going to drop? When are they going to say no more? We're not allowing any recreation and stuff like that." But there was reason to their thought process, and outdoor recreation was allowed with limitations and stuff. And uh, and we get a, we get close, and we're getting close, and we're getting close, and uh, nose right up against the grindstone. We're running out of time. Are, are we really going to be able to pull all this stuff off? Uh, which I never would have a doubt in Jared and this crew of not being able to pull this off. And they did. Uh, but then you get into around Thanksgiving and they talk about the Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, what did they call it? Uh, where everybody was going to get COVID again. And it was going to be a big COVID push. And I'm like, holy cow, they shut us down. And then there was the Christmas rush of, oh, everybody's going to get COVID in Christmas and we're going to shut us down. But I'm glad you were here that day, December 15th. <laughs> because we opened and it was all worth it. So the, you got a lot done that summer. I want to focus on the Rangeley quad for a moment here, Jim, because this was, we can't overstate what a big deal this was. The, the Mueller quad that, or the Mueller double that you pulled out was an antique built in the 1960s. And I imagine you could have gone fixed grip here. I think the expectation, particularly in new England is for any lift over a thousand feet is people really expect that detach. And it really does change how people think about a ski area and how they consider it and, and how often they want to come back. So let's go into two things here, Jim. Number one, did you debate between detach and fixed grip and why did you go detach? And number two, how has that quad changed Saddleback, the way it skis, the way people think about it, the way they perceive Saddleback? So the, uh, there was a, a lot of debate between the fixed grip and the detach. And uh, actually, Jared and I were very, very much sided with the fixed grip quad because, and, and the only reason, and the only reason why we, we decided that is because of economics. You can build a fixed grip quad for half the price of a detach. And we've, we've always had, we, we've always needed to watch our finances and be responsible with our finances here. And I think it's mostly out of that fiscal responsibility that we thought that we needed a detach. And, uh, and I'm glad that there was people on the other side uh, uh, that pu- pushed to Arc Terrace that we needed a detach. And, and I, I, you know, Arc Terrace would, would entertain any of those thought processes. But when you're talking about the difference between, you know, three and a half million to seven million to buy a chairlift, you better have some darn good, uh, you know, support information for that. And we dug and we dug and, and we decided and they decided to do that. And uh, they had some help for some people that gave them a little bit of advice. And and uh, it's kind of funny, the same naysayers that uh, 
didn't want the T-Bar replaced with the Kennebago with the same naysayers that didn't want the detachable quad. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, 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 I myself had, uh, is, are we really going to do this? Cause I never thought we'd do this in my career here. And, uh, and, uh, but when we got it and when we started using it, Oh my gosh, thank, thank God we got that lift. Thank, <laughs> thankful, 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 because it is, uh, I think that everybody thought it was going to destroy the skiing experience and it hasn't done that at all. It gets people up. Uh, people get more runs. They spread out more. Uh, and, and what it does is you can get 10 runs in an hour and a half and, uh, people come in, get their runs and then they spend the time in the cafeteria or the pub or just get their runs and go home. Uh, it has not destroyed the skier. We have, we have a bunch of downhill capacity to offer, you know, we've, uh, sub, you know, we've added the, the, the Sandy detach and the, in the, the old cup subject T bar is brand new list. And now we spread people out. Um, and even on our busiest days, we don't have much of a lift line. Uh, so that getting the people out of the base area, like I, that detachable quad is, <laughs> is an unbelievable piece of equipment. And as a bonus, because you put it in when you did, as you said, in the pandemic summer, you probably got it at what looks like a heck of a deal now because the price of lifts has just astronomically skyrocketed since then. So I, I think that the, the biggest deal is we got it uh, in the ski business. Now you're looking at doing projects two years out. And I think that I think chairlifts are almost two years backed up now. Even our snowmaking, snowmaking equipment that we bought uh, last summer to use this year. And because of my favorite term, supply chain difficulties, <laughs> uh, we didn't get it. So we had to run a, the, the second half of our old snowmaking system and we still don't have the equipment. So yes, the opportunity to actually get a lift and get it installed during the pandemic, that was, that was helpful because the year after that, and then this past year, everybody's catching back up on their lifts People are catching back up on their recreation. The ski business is doing very well, and people are buying in in uh, ski ski areas are buying lifts again. So, yes, just having the ability to purchase a lift was a big deal to us. So let's talk about Andy Shepard for a moment here, Jim. You weren't general manager at that time. Andy Shepard is who Arteris brought on to run the ski area, and he ran it and got it back up and running. And then you took over for him last year. So talk a little bit about Andy and why he was the right leader for Saddleback's uh, resuscitation. Andy, uh, Andy, first of all, he's as charismatic as they come and he talks and he's eloquent and, and uh, he's a great speaker. And uh, he's got that, he wears that typical ski area sweater with that ski area grand mustache. And <laughs> he looks like a Swedish guy up there. <laughs> And I know he's not Swedish. He'll kick me for saying that. But Andy just was a quintessential ski area general manager. He, he looked like one. He talked like one in, in, in his mannerisms and stuff. And and Andy had brought quite a following in his former ownerships of Black and Big Rock and some of the other stuff that he did and uh, very big in the biathlon uh, ski business and is in the biathlon hall of fame, national biathlon hall of fame. Andy had, knows a lot of people in the ski business and he had connections and uh, um, he was very good to get on the news and tell, help tell the story and stuff like that. And uh, 
just his basic his ski connections and how well he worked with our team uh, during, you know, this getting this place open and, uh, and, and basically during a pandemic was, was key to what we did. We didn't have the time to trip and fall and, and falter and delay. It was full of steam ahead and he got it and he helped us do that. He ran interference and he just helped us do that. A couple other Greg Andrews did some financial stuff, huge in helping us getting us open. And of course, Tom Federley, uh, who does, who's our, uh, legal advisor and did most of our development for the, for these past three years with the three key members working with Arc Terrace and keeping us going. But Andy was the face, Andy was the voice. Um, and you know, he just, who doesn't love the guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Andy's been on this podcast and he, he was, he was, and has been terrific to work with ever since. So he got settled back up and running again. What can you tell us here, Jim, as you're winding down your third ski season since Saddleback reopened under Arc Terrace? What can you tell us about how the business has evolved? Where are you at in your goals? What can you tell us about visitation or revenue or, or however you want to frame it to help us understand how Saddleback has done as a business since coming back online in 2020? Uh Saddleback is getting back in the business. We have a very low percentage of skier visits in Maine, uh, comparatively speaking to our competition, Sugarloaf and Sunday River, and Pleasant Mountain, formerly known as Shawnee Peak. They Pleasant Mountain's next to the food chain. Uh, it's not far for a drive. So they, they, they get a lot of people there. Uh, but there's only so many skier visits in Maine, and we're all competing for them. And... Uh, what we're doing is we're trying because everybody says everybody in the ski business say they have the best snow. Everybody says they have the best lifts. Everybody says they have, have the best skier experience and the best guest service. It's, it's so common in the ski business. It's hard to judge which who really does have the best. We're, we're banking our cards on the fact that we truly do have the best skier surface. We truly do make the best snow. Our lift equipment is got to be some of the newest of any lift equipment in the ski industry, uh, and a lot more reliable. And I would, I would very proud of the fact of our staff is very loyal to each other. We don't have internal bickering going back and forth all the time. We support each other. We like each other. Uh, we do work as a family, uh, and our our guest services out of the world, our hosts and our ski school and ski patrol and lift operations team and cafeteria and, and, and pub, anybody that deals with the guests here is they, they have a smile on their face and they're helpful and they, and they, and they, they do their best and it's not forced upon them. They do it. They do it on their own. They love, they love it here. And, uh, we, we have a, we have a place to work that people truly love and, uh, you know, you, once you drink the Saddleback Kool-Aid, you're typically <laughs> in. But what we've done to increase our businesses, we our marketing is really up the game. Uh, we have a marketing experience that uh, uh, we, we use sonar and words from the woods, and they're just such great people to work here. You know when your marketing team buys a, uh, buys a, a house in Rainsley just so they can be closer to the skier mm -hmm. they love? You know, that means something right there. And right. Uh, so we're... We, you know, we 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 tried. Our marketing is, I, I hear it all the time. Your marketing's killing it, and 
what we what we do is we basically back up the marketing. And when we say we have less lift lines, and when we say our skiing is better, and we report true snow, there's no exaggerating, there's no lying, there's no hey, let's see what our competition posted so we can, and and our we we back up what we that we advertise. I think is. What we're doing and people are starting to notice and the the indie pass has brought a lot of new guests and a lot of new friends and i don't know how many times i have heard this winter i've never been here before but you can bet you you can bet i'm going to come back <laughs> let's let's focus on those lists for a minute jim because you're right you do have actually one of the most modern lift fleets in the country if you look at years of install so in so the rangely quad obviously gets the headlines and, and still is your alpha lift but in 2021, you replaced that Cupsultic T-Bar, which lands kind of at a similar place, starts a little higher on the mountain with a brand new T-Bar. And I'm sure that, you know, you you have your old T-Bar loyalists who complain when you replace it with a chairlift. I'm sure you also have your majority of people who say, hey, we don't like T-Bars. We want a chairlift. So talk us through this, the decision to replace Cupsultic T-Bar with another T-Bar. Why did that make sense? Was it the right decision? Now, on another really huge discussion with us in Art Terrace was the T-Bar. And I, I know we're going to talk about the Sandy, too. Uh, just the conversations were so in-depth and so detailed. And uh, when you research, you know, the benefits and of, of a T-Bar versus a, a chairlift. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of written articles about it. And, and there are benefits and there are things that aren't so good about them. And uh, there a lot of people don't like T-Bars. Um, you know, the old, the old, uh, cup septic T-bar that we had was an old hall that was my grandfather helped install in 1960. No soft start, started direct drive, jerk your eye teeth right out of your head. If, (laughs) if the spring was working in the, in the, uh, in the, the T, you know, and it's just uh, how many bloody lips and broken (laughs) teeth came out of that T-bar. I'll never know, but it does. First of all, so the benefit of a T-bar, there are a number of benefits of the T-bar. It's out of the wind. Uh, today, we're operating the T-bar when most of the, our other lift service is down. And after a big powder storm, we're getting people up the mountain. We're using buses to shuttle them there so they can do that. Uh, so you always have that. And then, you know, it, this is a new, newer high-speed lift. It only takes four and a half minutes to get from the bottom to the top. So there's people that just camp out in that. You know, intermediate area of, of Silver Doctor, Red Devil, Blue Devil, Gray Ghost, and and they and out of the herd a little bit. And there's people that just love it. Uh, racers, competition, love a T bar. Always on the ground. You know, legs are always staying warm. Uh, cold weather. You know, just being able to stay on the ground and keep moving as opposed to sitting in a chair that's doing <laughs> twenty miles an hour in a, in, in a wind. Is that there's some there's some. Uh, opportunity with that, that that people enjoy. Uh, it's really good for the condo owners um, to get to access their their access their condos and stuff like that. Uh, but we're really th- those are all benefits of it. But again, that T bar cost a third of what a chairlift mm-hmm. would have cost to put there. Uh, and uh, then you get to say, well, if we went through the discussions about putting a quad there. And is it going the same footprint or do we bring it all the way down to the lodge? Or then if you get it to the lodge, the lifts always grow in people's eyes when you talk about a lift and people start to point and put dots on a map. And, well, if you're going to stop it here, why don't you stop it here? Or why don't you stop it here? <laughs> and the lift turns into be 6,000 feet long, you know. <laughs> but uh, 
anyway, we, we finally convinced him and we sealed the deal. And that lift came from Italy uh, through Doppelmayr. And, and we had to sign a contract a year before to get it. And uh, uh, it was, it's, it's uh, the other benefits. It was easy to build. It was cheap to build. It's cheap to operate in, not cheap, but inexpensive. And it only takes a couple of people to run it. And it's extremely reliable. The lifespan on that T-bar is 30 years, you know, because it's so low impact and uh, out of the weather and stuff. So anyway, that's how, how we came about with the decision. And when it comes to the customer base, if you get them over there, the, a lot of the time the, the the lift operator at the bottom is a snowboarder and will we'll place the T, have them stand on their board, like, you know, stand on the uh, bump pad on the bottom of the board and and basically just stick the T between their legs and it t- takes off so gradually and slowly mm. that it, it, it's just like a, a gentle tug on the hill until <laughs> tension gets up and, and you go up and as long as you can stand up on a board, uh, snowboarders don't have a problem with it. And even the critics, the I'm never riding a T-bar critics will go over there and once they give it a try and realize all you have to do is stand up, then they're they're in they're in because uh, you can do a lot of laps off it really quickly out of the wind. Uh, it's quiet. Uh, it's kind of a, a surreal experience to be in the woods like that, traveling like that. Uh, again, I think it was a very good, uh, good move on our part to put that T-bar there. And because of the way that your mountain is laid out, Jim, and I believe this is the case, but correct me if I'm wrong. If you do have a wind hold on Rangeley, if Kapsutik is still active, because of the pass trail, and if Kennebago is not down, you can still have pretty much the whole mountain open. And that's that's another vote in the column of, of T-Bar. Is, is that the case? That's what I'd read elsewhere. But is that the case that Kennebago is a little more wind resistant? So the Kapsutik helps you have the whole mountain open, even when Rangeley can't run. So uh, what day was it? I'm, days are running together for me. Uh, Wednesday, we, we got the initial big snowstorm. It came in hard, uh, and we we were only supposed to get four or five inches, and we got over 12 to 18, or I can't remember the exact depth by day. But anyway, the, the entire mountain was on wind hold except for the T-bar and the Kennebago. And we shuttled people to the T-bar, and they would take the pass to the Kennebago, and they stayed up there a good part of the, most of their day until they were mm-hmm. basically skied out and just powdered rate to death and <laughs> happy as can be. So yes, it is very helpful to do that. And uh, since we've been talking, I don't know where we're operating right now, but that's what we're doing right now. We're still giving someone an skier experience, an extremely windy day. And as far as the Kennebago is concerned, uh, I always tell people as, as I got, a, 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 we were on wind hold yesterday morning for a bit. What, what, what prompts you to shuttle chairlift off for wind? And there's three or four things. It's it's wind speed, wind direction, of 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 course, and, and gusts. How big the gusts are, um, and uh, and and how it hits the chair. How does it affect the chair? Now you have a certain chair chair pitch that uh, swing that's that's acceptable, and once you get past that, it's not acceptable anymore. The Kennebago is protected against any south wind, uh, a south or a southeast or a southwest, because it lives right in that little protected zone there. Um, the Kennebago takes it really hard in a northeaster uh, because the wind comes across it and, and affects the chair swing a lot more. Uh, there's a portion of it down below, about two towers down, called Firefly, and the wind just whips through there on a real real hard east or a west wind, so it affects it there. 
But uh, yes, it does give us opportunity to get out most of our ski area open having the T-bar to the Kennebago. You know what surprised me when I was riding Rangeley, Jim, is that's a really low running lift compared to most high-speed lifts. Can you just talk a little bit about that profile and, and how you decided on that? So uh, it's a lot higher than the old lift. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we decided to put the, the chair passenger travel closer to the woods, uh, so that changed the direct direction of the original passenger travel. And we did try to lower it, and we had to put more towers in to do that. We could have had it a lot higher and had less towers, and it would have been a little bit more expensive. But I always say, if you want to test something for cold or wind, bring a saddleback, because we get the extremes of both. Uh, We're comparative to Mount Washington, and that's no joke. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, we wanted it a little bit lower, and and we really lowered it at the top to to be able to operate it more often. All right, let's talk about Sandy. Uh, Actually, Sandy... Arcteris demolished as soon as they bought the area. So you operated without a lift on that line for a couple of years. You have a brand new Partech quad in that location this year. We don't see a lot of Partechs built these days. So take us through the Sandy project and the progression from having no lift there to having that portable rope tow last year to now having a brand new Partech quad and how happy you are with that lift. So uh, Sandy's a great story. My father helped build the Sandy in 1967. So, wow. uh, and uh, the Sandy was a Hopkins lift, and Hopkins is uh, Odie Hopkins was out of New Hampshire, and they only had two operating chairlifts in the ski business, and they had one operating T-bar at Waterville Valley, and we actually bought the the drive and return of the the other operating chairlift in Pennsylvania where they mm-hmm. tore it out a few years ago, and because we needed the bull wheels mm-hmm. and, and replaced our <laughs> bull wheels with it, and. Uh, but anyway, the Sandy ran from 67 to the year we operated in 2015. It has a drawbridge gearbox. Yeah. <laughs> There's a gearbox bigger than a pickup truck in it. It, had, <laughs> it was just, it had a drawbridge gearbox in it, which was huge. And uh, But again, one-off lift, hard, hard, sort of hard to get parts for, but very reliable. But uh, again, in, when you put a lift in in the 60s, you start... You know, when you run it for that long, it, it was bulletproof. It, but you started thinking about your foundations and your, you know, your anchor bolts and the actual structural integrity of the steel and stuff like that. And we decided not to run it. We were we were going to put a ton of money into it and just keep it operational. But then when you do the, the cost analysis and think about how much money it's going to cost to truly make it, uh, you know, follow the new ANSI standards, it, w- it was just a lot cheaper just to buy a new lift. And... Uh, Hence, that's where we landed with Partech. And I, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to bang any lift company from Leitner Palmer or Doppelmayr, but uh, Hagen came out of Partech. Partech came out of Borvig. His dad owned Borvig, which has more chairlifts than almost anybody in the ski business to this right. day. And then they went to Partech and uh, we, we, we were in, comp, uh, we were pricing out at Partech between the Doppelmayr and, and uh, 2004 for this for the that south branch uh chair the lower chair that we have and we en- we ended up with a with a with a the doppelmeyer c-tech and uh anyway partech kind of went quiet for a little bit after that and then hagen i don't know if you've ever met him but he's a spitfire he he's a never give up type of guy and kind of <laughs> And he kind of got sick of the the big ski the the big ski lift companies and decided to make his own off brand uh, chairlift based on his own 
uh, technology and design. And, uh, and he did. And he makes one or two a year. He has a very small crew. He sees the installation through. I always call a Partech lift, uh, you know, the Ford F-150 with window cranks. Mm-hmm. It, is very, it is a very basic lift. Uh, it, it, it's a great operation. It's sturdy. It's well built. But I think the biggest thing with the Sandy is uh, it was easy to build. It was well manufactured, but you can use off the shelf parts to fix it. Whereas a Doppelmeyer and a, and a, and a Leitner Palmer, you have to use their parts to keep within their guidelines. So uh, anyway, that's how we landed it. And I think the biggest thing was Hagen held to a price that he offered me that lift three years ago. And uh, basically watched our story, wanted to be a part of Saddleback, wanted to have his lift here. And uh, he held to a price he offered three years ago, which was about half of the price of a lift that we could have gotten from another manufacturer, which wouldn't have been available anyway. We would have had to wait a couple of years. And he built it, helped us install it. And we turned her on. And uh, that gives access to the T-bar, as you well know. Mm Mm-hmm. It gives the terrain park guys and kids and gals, they love it. Uh, because the years before, what we had is terrain park people railing down Gray Ghost at a high rate of speed just to make mm. the laps on the, in the terrain park get back on the lift, straight line Gray Ghost, go down to the terrain park. Right. So having that is very helpful. And then access to the T-bar when uh, the range is a little bit more congested and that range around the area is a little bit more congested is great. And the condo owners love it. You get on the sandy, you can skate over to your house, take the, take the rock pond trail back to the lodge, go home and eat lunch. Uh, it serves a great purpose and it basically fills our basic lift infrastructure out the way we wanted to see it. I mean, you're in amazing shape right now. Your oldest lift. And I think any ski area, especially in new England in the Northeast would love to have their oldest lift be from 2004, which is when you built South Branch and then Kennebago in 2008. And then the other ones, Cupsuptic, Rangeley and Sandy have all been built in the last three years. So you're set. And that's uh, that's a great checkbox to have. What's next, Jim? And, and, you know, as skiers, we're always asking that. There's been a lot of very aggressive, ambitious Saddleback master plans printed over the years. Some of the old trail maps you referenced this earlier had a lot of lifts drawn in. The 2008 map has lifts penciled in skiers left and skiers right of the current ski area, as well as straight up Casablanca glades. I imagine you get some pushback on that now that that terrain is taken off. But, but where I, and, and I know that when I talked to Andy two and a half years ago on this podcast, he said that, well, you know, we just need to get reopened right now and we'll focus on that later. Where are you at in the master planning process? What's your current thinking around the future footprint of Saddleback's evolution and, and what's your timeline? When, when do you think we might see something that we can start to get excited about? <laughs> Heck, I think, Stuart, we could talk an hour about this. <laughs> All those three questions. So let me start with a funny story. A few years ago, we had a marketing guy that uh, I won't mention his name or whatever, but anyway, he had some trail maps built and this marketing guy drew a bunch of lifts on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> unbeknownst to Jared and I and the operations team. And we get these trail maps with all the future lifts on there. <laughs> and we're like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> it was just, it wasn't humorous at the time because I took offense to it. Like it wasn't even run by us and they printed these maps. Right. And we carried a few of them forward. But so this is our, this is our thought process from now. And this comes, these thought processes come from Jared. 
we need to we need to utilize our existing footprint to its fullest potential before we think about building another lift or another ski area. Mm-hmm. We have we we have just done a master plan with the SE Group, and we have some very firm numbers of uh, what we need to operate and to be uh, you know to get to stabilize and, and and be in better shape and be able to s- support this habit that we've got going up here. And we have uphill traffic to give, and we have quite a bit of downhill traffic to give. Uh, again, like I said, our, our bed base and our business centers are, are the struggle. So our, our, our business plan right now, our business model is right now, we built 22 A-frames this past year. They all sold just as fast as we could build them. Uh, we have another little development area in Green Drake that we're going to try to sell lots for, and those will be specialized higher-end higher homes and stuff like that. But the master plan right now costs for between 100 and 150 what you would call the the term is uh, tiny homes. We we call them uh, alpine cabins. They're a little bit more high end. They're twenty by twenty, twenty by fifteen with two stories. Uh, so they're a little bit more tasteful looking than just your typical tiny home that you know, kind of a box with a roof on it and stuff like that. And we'll keep half of them and sell half of them. But our intention is to try to to build that bed base. When we do that, it's mostly on the west side of the mountain, down on towards the Morning Glory Trail. Uh, one, one of our other limitations that we have at Saddleback that we're trying to solve for is we don't have snowmaking on that Hudson Highway Trail that goes through the condo areas. Uh, it's real expensive to put snowmaking up over there because of the length and how far away from it is from our ex- existing utilities like snowmaking, water, and power. Uh and it would require a lot of trail work and it would require fixed guns. So it, it's starting to force our hand to get a snowmaking line on uh, Upper Hudson Highway and maybe sometime in the near future down Morning Glory uh, so we can have all of those and to, to feed these tiny homes. And then there's a few more other things going in that area over there. So I would expect probably the next lift to be uh, an intermediate served lift over in that McGalloway area that was once advertised a few years ago to the McGalloway condo owners that they were going to have when they built their condos that <laughs> they never saw through. I would suspect that would probably be the next one. Uh, and when, then when we get caught up with, with that and we, and we have these and we fill these Alpine village home uh, cabins and stuff like that, then we'll probably look at expanding outside of the perimeter uh, as you know, that is extremely expensive. Uh, there's no infrastructure outside of our borders. And uh, then we'll decide whether we're going to go into the no-name Nubble or or towards uh, some of these other peaks that we own around here, the Horn most specifically. But no-name Nubble is right in the Horn. Or maybe we'll develop, a, put some remote skiing access in with uh, Snowcat access or a T-bar. That's always thought about. Uh, but we think about these expansions. We want to be, we want to be responsible to the, you know, to the to the land. Uh, we need to be responsible to our guests, and we need to be fiscally responsible. And they all they all has to fit full circle. Uh, so there's there are some thoughts of building some lifts outside the typical perimeter right now. We have some work to do to to fill this perimeter right here. To the we want to fill it to the point where it, it doesn't hurt and we're not overcrowded, and we have some of these other some of these problems a lot of our competition has with parking and all of those other things. Uh, 
but we do have a, a, a very well thought master plan, not as elaborate as the ones that you've seen in the past. And uh, Stuart, it will be released to the public in the near future. We've got to meet with the plantations and, and a few other authorities to walk them through it first. Uh, there are steps that we have to take, uh, but that master plan will be introduced soon. But it's mostly around bed base. There are some other amenities that we're looking at. We are looking at building a hotel. Uh, we need a hotel really bad. Uh, there's a couple, three different versions of a hotel from a basic bare bones hotel that we're going to try to build first with just beds in it. Uh, and then we'll build a little bit more higher end uh, hotel closer to the ski area central and then maybe even build one more, a little bit more elaborate in the future. We have a lot of we have a lot of bills to pay, and uh, we have a lot of uh, business to catch up on, and things of that nature before we get to that. But I would say in the very near future, you'll start to see these alpine cabins start coming about, uh, and and maybe in the next two years, another hotel come about here at Saddleback. Exciting stuff. All right, let's wrap up here today, Jim, with a talk on passes. You, you seem to be a big fan of the Indy Pass. Talk about that relationship and how important the Indy Pass has been to Saddleback since reopening. So uh, PJ McSparren, uh, who, who's our marketing guy, came up with that idea as opposed to going with the, the epics or the icons. And we definitely went Indy. And that was an extremely smart decision on our part. Um, they work with us well. It helps us meet our yield when it comes to our ticket rate. Uh, and it's brought, it's brought a ton of new business to the area. And uh, I know it's gone into new ownership, but I think the, 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 the some of the same people are going to stay with it. And it's going to be basically the same offering. Uh, I don't know of any one thing that has helped us. Like I said, we had a very aggressive um, skier visit expectation this year. And I don't think that we would have met it without the uh, Indy Pass. And not only that, another another idea of, of PJ's, which is somewhat brilliant, is no blackouts. And, uh, man, that has been so helpful here to us. Uh, I can't say enough about having that pass price for us in our business. You do still have a reservation requirement for Indy Pass holders for the current ski season. Was that the right decision? Uh, yes, we... We, under, we underwent a few changes here in the last three years that have been tough. Uh, I, I, what, first of them, we're on our third POS system in three years, uh, and, and, it's, and it's basic. Uh, it's a full business center POS system all integrated with each other. Uh, the first one that we had the first year uh, failed, and we got out of it. And then we used a, another very simple one last year to get us through, and then we settled on a new POS system this year. So we had a lot of integration with that. And then, then we have the online waivers. We're in this business of, uh, you know, if you're going to ski in a sport like this, you have to have accountability for your actions and you have to sign a waiver now. So all of these things and the reservation stuff, uh, they're tough at times. Like, you know, February vacation week, we had a line every day in February vacation week. And, and most of it was uh, indie Pass holders. Uh, they were very respectful. They were very cooperative. Uh, they know the deal. They, the Indy Pass holders know the deal when it comes to the reservation system, and they know what they have to do, and they don't complain and get boisterous and things like that. And we toss everything at it we can. We have we have iPads out there that people can st- build their accounts with. We have people guiding them through. We have hosts guiding them through. We have customer service people 
four people behind the ticket counter. And what looks like a really overpowering line uh, really doesn't take long to get through. And uh, like I said, they're, they're used to it. So it, it's really not a big deal to them to, to sit. And as long as you're making the effort to get them through the line, uh, they, they recognize that fact. All right, leave us with this thought, Jim. Saddleback season pass generally debuts around six ninety nine. You haven't yet, as of recording this on March sixth, Saddleback has not yet released their twenty twenty three to twenty four season pass offerings. You've tried a number of different things, uh, a three visit pass, and um, you know, gotten really creative with it over the past couple of years. Anything you can tell us about your thinking around twenty twenty three to twenty four passes, as far as pricing or offerings, or do you expect it to be similar to last year's? What can you tell us here? So uh, I, I believe, and I'm going out on a limb here. I think we're going to advertise our season passes on Wednesday of this week. Okay, uh, we've we've got some boxes to to, to check off before we do that. Uh, basically. Uh, you know, there's a few things that there's a number of things that, uh, attached to the pass um, that we need to, that we need to finalize and stuff like that. But I believe it's going on sale or going out to, to the public on Wednesday. Um, we will increase the pass price a little bit. A ton of consideration went into that because we don't just want to increase pass prices every year. Uh, but as I said, unfortunately, the cost of power is doubled and doubled again. And what used to be a $200,000 power bill is up on $900,000 now. And uh, the price of fuel has gone through the roof and, and the price of labor has gone through the roof. Uh, our labor is almost, labor rate has almost doubled uh, since, uh, especially since 2015. And we have to cover those costs and, and, and uh, the price will go up a bit. Uh, it may, it may be, it may get noticed a little bit. Uh, we plan on saying these very things. Uh, unfortunately, we need to increase our season pass prices a, little, a bit. But buy them early. Buy your pass early. Get it at the best rate. Jump right into the pool as soon as you can, and then you get the best pass rate that there is. And that's the same with day tickets too. Uh, if you really plan and can think about your life a little bit and and buy your day tickets in advance you'll get a much better price than walking up to the window to get them. And uh, it helps us. It helps you. There is a better way uh, to do it if you really think about it. With that, Jim, I will let you go. I really appreciate this. It was so fun to catch up on Saddleback and all the progress you've been making up there. It sounds like some really great momentum. I am overdue for a return visit. Thank you so much for this. Congratulations to you and the team for making this thing move again. And I hope we can catch up again soon. Stuart, it was great talking to you. I hope I didn't bore you to death with our <laughs> life and times at Saddleback, and I hope people will listen to this. But, uh, yeah, you need to come back up here and and, and get into this vibe, man, because it's really good right now. And, and thanks for talking to me this morning. That's Jim Quimby, General Manager of Saddleback, Maine. I love Saddleback. Love the story. Love the mountain. Love what everyone who loves the place is doing with it. Jim, that was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely mesmerizing. Your passion for the mountain and for Rangeley is infectious. And I am so pumped to see you leading Saddleback's evolution. So thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Whitecap Mountains, Wisconsin will be next. 
followed by Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peak, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth-Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. To get those episodes the moment they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.